According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we get started, you can turn everywhere. Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, and John 6. Good luck with that. Uh, Let's start with the shortest one, uh, which is Luke 9. Let's start with Luke 9. We will spend the bulk of our time in John and Mark. But we'll grab the Luke and Matthew here early on and then uh, pretty well keep ourselves in John and in Mark for the, the bulk of this study. They are the longest uh, developments and have the most detail. Also, I'll take this first moment to uh, make sure cell phones are turned off. <laughs> All right. Good deal. Let's take time for silent prayer. Make sure we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that it is to assemble together. Father, we thank you for the prayer time that the ladies had and Father, for the fruit that you bear in uh, such time, we thank you for those that are able to be here today, the extra folks that can come today because of spring break. We just praise your name for being so faithful. We thank you and ask for you to guide our study in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is episode 36 in the life of Christ in the Galilean ministry, the return of the twelve. Uh, we had seen prior to the uh, beheading of John the Baptist, we had seen the twelve were commissioned. They were sent forth on a two-by-two training assignment, and uh, he gave them that authority. In fact, reading here in Luke 9, before we get to verses 10 through 17, we find the uh, commissioning of these 12 in verses 1 through 9. He called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey. Neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. And I'm highlighting that because we're going to come to concepts of that here in the feeding of the 5,000 because they're back from their training ministry and, uh, and they have no bread. And not only do they have no bread, but now crowds and crowds and crowds are gathering together and they have no bread. And so uh, there's a principle that's going to be taught here. Uh, that the Lord's going to teach them that doesn't contradict what he taught them when he said, take no bread. But the setting is now different. They've not, they're not out there in their missionary endeavors. They're back reporting to him, and the crowds are gathering to him. So clearly that's a different situation than, uh, than you would have otherwise. We'll talk about that when we, when we deal with that. All right. Um, then uh, Herod beheads John and the things we've studied over the past couple of weeks. We get to verse 10, when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done, taking uh, them with, I'm sorry, yes, verse 10, when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done, taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida, but the crowds were aware of this and following him and uh, and welcoming him, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Now the day was ending, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away, that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat, for here we are in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. Can you imagine? <laughs> How are they going to feed all those people? Like a husband coming home and springing it on his wife that they've got, you know, that he invited 30 for dinner, and all of a sudden, well, how are they supposed to handle that, you know? All right. Uh, so he says, you give them something to eat. Now, how might they respond when he says, you give them something to eat? Well, what kind of power were they given up in verse 1? He gave them power and authority over all the demons to heal diseases, to perform healing. Even we were, we, when we read it in the Matthew parallel, Matthew chapter 10, they could raise the dead. They could do all kinds of power, signs, and wonders. And yet when he tells them, you feed them, uh, they say, well, how? We don't, we don't have what it would take. Uh, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food. 
for all these people. We'll get more of the details when we get into the Mark account and into especially the John account when Philip is particular one who's tested in this regard. And Andrew actually brings a young, young lad forward who has the loaves and fish. The disciples didn't even have the loaves and fish. The reason why they had five loaves and two fish was because Andrew spotted a young lad that, uh, that had that. And so uh, it's, kind of, it's a bit of a stretch to say we have five loaves and, uh, and two fish because it was the one lad that actually had it that, uh, that the apostles found. Anyway, let's continue the Luke account. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, Have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. They did so and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied, and the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up, twelve baskets full. All right, so that takes us in the Luke account in verses 10 through 17. Matthew account is very similar, although Luke actually names the region and the location of the uh, nearest city there being Bethsaida. Let's uh, go to Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21. When Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities and he went ashore. Uh, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. But he said, bring them to me, ordering the people to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over, the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. So very similar to the Luke detail. Differences being Luke actually names the nearest city. Uh, Matthew does not. Matthew mentions the fact that it was a boat crossing where the people had to travel by land by moving around and so forth. Divergent details, not contradictory, but complementary in every respect. All right, over to Mark. We have the longest of the developments, but I want to want to reserve John for the last. So let's do Mark 6, 30 through 44. All right, the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For, they, for there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going, and many recognized them, and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, I'm going to have more comment on this, by the way. We're just doing reading to get us started. I found it hard enough to stop there in verses 33 and 34. Uh, verse 35, when it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and look. When they had found out, they said five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took five loaves and two fish, and looking toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them, and he divided up the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. And there were five thousand men who ate the loaves. Again, a little bit divergent details. We've come to expect this in the gospel record. Uh, complementary, not contradictory in any respect. All right, finally then, John chapter 6. Verses 1 through 
John chapter 6. It's been a long time since we've been in the Gospel of John. The um, healing of Bethesda was the last time we actually saw the Gospel of John back in John chapter 5. And uh, pretty much all of the Galilean ministry has now intervened and... uh, Tremendous amount of time has gone by. When we focus the Galilean ministry, almost up to, say, two years of Christ's ministry, we're pretty well focused on the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, it's very unusual to have John as a, uh, as a uh, text during this period of Christ's life. In fact, this is the first event that we've had where all four gospels have covered it since, can you think of the last time we've had it? Basically, the baptism at the River Jordan was the last time that we've had all four Gospels narrate a particular event. And this is the first miracle to be uh, to be covered by all four Gospels and the last miracle to be covered by all four Gospels until you get to the miracle of the resurrection itself. We'll discuss that when we discuss the uh, we give you the point by point outline here. All right. The last one we'll look at then is John, John chapter six. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. Remember, John was written in decades later, and primarily to a Gentile audience, or to a Roman audience that would be more familiar with the Roman terms. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near, Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Now, this is interesting. John wrote his gospel decades after Matthew, Mark and Luke. Uh, He's the last living apostle. Uh, We have the synoptic records. This is a very well-known story recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels. And yet when John records it, John gets very precise in naming Philip in naming uh, Andrew here shortly, in discussing the Passover conditions of this event and uh, and more information. So take note, not contradictory, but as we say, complementary. So Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Keep in mind, every test you and I face, God already knows what the solution is. He knows what the Ekbasis victorious conclusion is. He knows what his plan is. We don't know what it is, but he's testing us in this. See, it's like when he tested Abraham and his faith. Was it, did he know that Abraham would, would be faithful to offer his son Isaac? Of course he knew how it would be in any event. He himself knew what he intended to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. You know, you got to wonder, was Philip some kind of an accountant or did he, you know, was he a purchaser of some sort? How he looked over the crowd and estimated 200 denarii would be the cost to, uh, for just the smallest of meals. Uh, you know, I don't know, they didn't have a McDonald's drive through or whatever down there in the city, at the, the village at the bottom of the hill. But he uh, just looks at the crowd and he calculates 200 denarii. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? John gives us the detail that the loaves, not just five of them, but they were actually barley loaves, the cheapest of the uh, grains for bread. And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. And there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the two fish, uh, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. Remember, Philip said, you know, if we spent 200 denarii, which maybe was everything they had in their budget, might have been their cash on hand. Um, if we spent 200 denarii and to feed everybody, it would be like hors d'oeuvres, it would be like appetizers, they'd... they'd They wouldn't starve to death, but it wouldn't really be a full meal, see, for everyone to have a little. Well, here they're filled. They're absolutely filled. They're not just getting hors d'oeuvres. They're not just getting, uh, you know, just a snack. They're getting filled, and there is an abundance left. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments, 
from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the signs which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. All right. And we'll uh, deal with that response here a little bit more in a moment. All right. So there's our four accounts. All four accounts, each one will, uh, will give a little bit different detail from their perspective. Remember, of the four accounts, only two of them were actually here that day. Matthew was an apostle. He was on hand that day, and he recorded what he recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. John was there that day, and he recorded decades later what happened and gave more detail than Matthew chose to give. Mark undoubtedly heard the story through Peter, traveled with Peter all those years, and learned about it from Peter. And Luke, of course, traveled with Paul and, and, uh, and had time to interview people while Paul was in prison for two years. Uh, Luke made, uh, did a lot of historical research during that period of time. But beyond the human factors involved, all four of these accounts are written under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. So all four of them are absolutely true in the details of what they record. And we accept that. Let's get some points of study. The setting for this episode is the Passover. And it is the Passover one year before the crucifixion. The setting for this episode is the Passover one year before the crucifixion. And so for this episode, we are very thankful that we have the Gospel of John. John gives us the markers, the Passover markers that help us to determine the time frame for the ministry of Jesus Christ. If we did not have the Gospel of John, we would not know how long the ministry of Christ is. We would have no reason to believe that it was any longer than about a year and a half. If all we have was Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But it's John that gives us the reference to the... Uh, the Passovers. The Passovers recorded in the Gospel of John help us to establish a timeline for the ministry of Jesus Christ. I give that to you under subpoint A. We've given it to you previously in this study. I'll give it to you again, probably when we get to chapter 12. <laughs> All right. But just consider, I mean, if you, if you just kind of turn in your Bible here to John 1 and then also turn to John 21. And just kind of hold those pages together. There's your Gospel of John. And consider, hold your entire Gospel of John, and then look at John chapter 12. And you know what's happening here in John chapter 12? It's six days before Passover. He's in Bethany with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. The Passion Week begins in John chapter 12. So, if you look at 21 chapters of John, you've got 11 chapters leading up to the Passion Week. <laughs> and then you've got from chapter 12 to chapter 21 that covers the Passion Week and the 40 days after the resurrection. That's, it kind of gives you the idea of what John's emphasis is, don't you think? And stop to consider that uh, John chapter 6 then is one year out. This is the Passover one year out. So it kind of gives you that sense of proportion, gives you the idea of what, what John's priority is, where uh, what Luke takes so many chapters to get through the, the three and a half years of Jesus Christ, John really rushes to get to that last year, in between these two final Passovers and spends the bulk of his time in the final week. In the final week. Anyway, we've uh, discussed in the past how uh, unique John is in this regard. You would think about it, there's already three Gospels written. Why would John then, in the later years of his life, go ahead and write a fourth one that was identical to the three that are already out there? The Holy Spirit clearly wanted something unique to be then presented, uh, particularly the deity emphasized of Christ and the uh, aspects that, that make John so unique. All right, if you want to just simply get a quick survey in chapter 2 and verse 13, there's a reference to a Passover. In chapter 6 and verse 4, there's a reference to a Passover. And then there's the debated one, which I believe is a Passover, in chapter 5 and verse 1. He doesn't use the term Pascha, but it does say the feast of the Jews. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Because it does not include the term Passover, there are some that feel, well, maybe it could have been 
Pentecost. Maybe it could have been booths. Maybe it could have been something else. All right. But it just simply says the feast of the Jews. And uh, any feast that doesn't have to have a name associated with it would be thought of as Passover. So if you relate chapter 2, chapter 6, probably chapter 5, and then chapter 12 and verse 1, then that gives you the Passovers where you can track the ministry of Jesus Christ as three and a half years, marking the, uh, the times involved. All right. Anyway, we're very useful for that. Uh, very, uh, John is very useful for that. Secondly, point B, this marks the first Passover that Jesus failed to appear in Jerusalem. This marked the first Passover that Jesus failed to appear in Jerusalem. Remember, that was the custom. That was his family's priority. From the point of his birth, Joseph and Mary would always go up year after year after year. They would never miss a Passover. We read that account in Luke chapter 2 and verse 41. And I think that family tradition continued in in the Lord's public ministry. Clearly, uh, we have all the references in the Gospel of John that make it clear that he was going up to those feasts. He was going up to the Passovers. He was going up to the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7. We'll see that here momentarily. So um, for him to not go to Jerusalem at this time is noteworthy. And we've got to consider why is it that he's not going up to Jerusalem at this time? Why is it that he would miss a Passover, that he's never missed a Passover before? What was the difference? What changed in between then and now where he won't go up to Jerusalem? Beyond the fact, of course, that he did nothing apart from the Father's will and he's obedient to the Father and all the rest of that, that he wasn't defying the Father, that the Father directed him to not go to Jerusalem, perhaps. Well, like we read in... John chapter or in Luke chapter nine, having heard about the death of John, having heard about the death of John. So we'll talk about that as well. In the fall, there will be much spec in the coming fall, I should say, there would be much speculation that Jesus will skip the Feast of Tabernacles as well. If you're uh, with me in John six still, just peek down ahead of John chapter seven. In John chapter 7, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. That makes sense why he wasn't going to go to Jerusalem for that Passover. Now, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. So fast forward six months. We're now in the fall. In between John 6 and John 7, we've spanned six more months. Therefore, his brother said to him, leave here and go to the Judea that your disciples also may see your works, which you were doing. For no one does anything secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. See, that's that's a worldly approach. If you're if you're trying to build a ministry, then obviously you want the biggest name you can build for yourself. You want the biggest exposure. See, people get this idea that, well, this is your career. This is your purpose you've got a church you've got a ministry don't you want more people coming don't you want to have a bigger name don't you have more fame see they they don't understand that no i want to be faithful with the people i do have i want to be i want to be obedient to the ministry he's opened before me i'm not trying to magnify myself for not even his brothers were believing in him they were unbelievers until the resurrection glance on down to verse 10 verse 9 says having said these things he, he stayed in galilee But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as it were, in secret. He did go. He finally did go, but he went in a very unobtrusive fashion, undercover, as it were. And notice the crowd, their expectation. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? You can imagine, it's kind of like all of the, 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 the pomp and circumstance, all of the the attention focused uh, at the Academy Awards, you know, on the red carpet and ooh, who's who's coming next and who's here and oh, look what they're wearing and oh, I wonder if they're going to make it and why are they not coming? You know, why is a certain actor not, not making his appearance? You know, this is the high holy day of Hollywood is the Academy Awards, you know, and and, and it's significant. If if an actor is or a director or somebody in the Hollywood circles is is deliberately protesting or deliberately boycotting 
the Academy Awards, well, then that becomes scandal. That becomes noteworthy. That's, that's another part of the, of the, of the cult of, of Hollywood, see. There's other things as well, perhaps in, in other realms, the realm of sports or in the realm of, of whatnot. If, uh, if someone's expected to be there because they're noteworthy and they don't show, that becomes noteworthy. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? And there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. So this undercurrent was going on and all the hubbub and all the murmuring and all the talking. And yet they couldn't do so openly. Because the Jewish leaders wouldn't tolerate it, wouldn't accept it. So... You wonder, would there have been a, an attempt on his life six months ago if he would have gone up for Passover in the spring? And if that hostility is still growing here, uh, you see why he's there in secret. Anyway, the Lord wasn't afraid to die. But he knew that he had to die in the Father's timing. He knew he had to die according to the Father's will, that he would go to the cross. But this year is one year too early. And of course, Feast of Tabernacles is entirely inappropriate. He is the, he is the uh, sacrificial lamb. The Feast of Tabernacles is the first Advent uh, 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 metaphor. And the Feast of Booths is the millennium metaphor. Uh, remember, it's the Feast of Booths where all the Gentiles have to go to Jerusalem in the millennium and bend the knee and submit to Jesus Christ. All right, so the setting for this episode is the Passover. One year before the crucifixion. So congratulations. Here we are at lesson number whatever this is. And we are finally, we've covered two and a half years and we have one year to go. Uh, we are one year out from the cross officially as of this episode here. Secondly, the report of John the Baptist's death. The report of John the Baptist's death prompted the Lord to withdraw into seclusion. Prompted the Lord to withdraw into seclusion. I put seclusion in quotes. Because how seclusive are you when 5,000 men plus their wives and children are <laughs> crowding around? All right. How seclusive is that? One of the things, if you're in the church history class and you're doing your reading this week in, in Cairns, Christianity Through the Centuries, uh, one of the elements you're covering is monasticism, the early uh, monks, the early uh, monasticism trends that developed and uh, it, it's amazing. These guys, Peter the Hermit, some of these other guys, they they go out there, they live in a cave, they go out there, just get away from it all. But but they started developing reputations. And so others would join them. And then instead of just having a single monk living in a cave somewhere, you've got a monastery, a group of monks, a group of people surrounding them. And then, and then others would attach themselves, not because they wanted to be monks, but because they wanted to be near the monks. And so little monk villages would 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 uh, spark up with farmers and shepherds and other uh, uh you know secular career people uh that would then build up around around that see uh, that's a centerpiece of kiev by the way is around the the pachursk it's called pachursk monastery and it basically centered a, a whole town developed around around a monastery because people wanted to be near the monks they figured the monks uh, had a lot of wisdom. They had a lot of time on their hands. And they read the Bible a lot. And they prayed. They meditated. And so they would go and consult the monks. Say, you know, if you want answers to your Bible questions, go go ask some, you know, frustrated single guy living in a cave. Oh, yeah, that's that's a source of wisdom. Anyway, you will read about that in your reading this week on church history. Well, there he is going into seclusion, and they're chasing him down. He needs time to himself. And is he getting it? He's trying to teach his disciples to take time for themselves. Because they were so swamped, they didn't even have time to eat dinner. And so he said, come on, let's go into seclusion. Let's, let's, uh, let's get some time in prayer. Let's get some time with the Father. Let's have our own prayer meeting here. And crowds followed him up the mountaintop. A lot of lessons to be learned with respect to this. So uh, flipping over to Matthew here for the moment, Matthew 14. 
because we have the uh, the beheading of Herod or beheading of uh, John the Baptist by Herod there in verses one through twelve, and then we're given uh, the explanation here in Matthew that when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. And so it was prompted by the the news of the intensified stage of the angelic conflict that. The, the uh, conflict was raging to the point where in the father's permissive will, the adversary was being given permission to start to execute these servants, starting with John. See, you know, when, when the devil has permission to do that, like the, the line with Job that got pushed back and got pushed back, and now the line here has been pushed back to where the devil's got permission to execute John the Baptist. We're getting close, aren't we? Ministry is heating up. <laughs> and the Lord recognizes that. He recognizes, wow, this is getting serious. <laughs> we're, we're getting closer. You know, there's, there's certain things that will, that will wake you up. I think, I think uh, this wedding we just did on Saturday, you know, we plan for it. We talk about it. The day is coming. The day is coming. The day is coming. But it's, it's entirely different when you're standing there in a tux and there's crowds of people sitting there. And and the groom and I were standing off to the side, and uh, he's looking kind of kind of shell shocked. You know, it's almost like post traumatic stress syndrome or something from, you know. And he's he's just kind of looking in a daze. And we've been talking about the wedding for weeks and weeks and weeks. You know, it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. But you're, there's a huge difference when you're finally standing there in a tux, and the crowds are sitting there, and music's playing. You think, wow, this is really gonna happen. You know, the Lord, from eternity past, has known about the cross. Because from the eternal life conference, he was in agreement with the Father's plan. And he, he lays aside his privileges and he enters into humanity, into the, the body that was prepared. And he chooses not to access omnipotence. And he allows his humanity to grow in grace and knowledge. And in his humanity, he comes to learn about the cross, comes to read about the, the cross, and, and it's revealed to him that he's going to die on the cross, and, and it's getting closer, and it's getting closer. And he starts picking the 12 disciples, and he knows it's getting closer because he picks Judas. <laughs> and he knows it's getting closer. You realize that choosing Judas was a huge test? Yet he picked Judas. Judas is right here. He's dividing them up into 12. He's handing them 12 baskets and he hands that basket to Judas knowing that next Passover what Judas is going to do. So it's a huge test. And with the death of John the Baptist, that seriousness, that level of, 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 of testing just gets that much more developed to the point where, again, in this humanity, he has to remain obedient to the Father's will. See, very important. Now, under subpoint A, John, as the Baptist, accomplished the Father's purpose for his life and remained faithful until death. He'd done everything he was intended to do. Back in John chapter 3, he was telling his disciples, he must increase, but I must decrease. He knew that his life ministry was, was nearly complete. His final assignment on life was to be the, the prophetic rebuke for King, uh, King Herod. And he did that, and that's what got him arrested. He had to testify to Herod and to Herodias that what they were doing with, by getting married was wrong. And so he accomplished everything he had to do in life. And he remained faithful until death. And so you know this had to, this had to uh, weigh on the Lord and his thinking. John was his cousin, was his older cousin, was his predecessor in the ministry preceded him in the ministry, anointed him for ministry, baptized him for the beginning of his public ministry. He was the herald. He was the forerunner. So subpoint B, Jesus accomplished the Father's purpose for his life. And the Passover season became a huge test in anticipating his coming death. If you know, now none of us know, right? None of us know. But if for whatever reason you come to know, see, we had a visitor a couple Sundays ago. 
with uh, uh, terminal uh, liver cancer, I believe it is. And according to all the doctor's wisdom, um, she it's it's a matter of, of weeks, not months. And then she will be in glory. She will be with the Lord. We may see her again this next Sunday. I pray that we do. If she's still on earth, I pray that we do. But to be honest, you know, she's much better off being there rather than here. Either way, I hope to see her again next Sunday. I hope to see her husband next Sunday and her daughter next Sunday. I say they were here a couple weeks back. Uh, they missed this Sunday because they went to Disney World. It was uh, kind of the last thing with her granddaughters and her family and things like that. You know, So if you know this is your last birthday or your last Christmas or your last whatever, see, does it then become significant? For Christ, this is his last Passover that he will survive. Because the next Passover, he, he will be sacrificed. He will be on the cross while the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees and priests and Levites and everybody over there in the temple is, is busy slaughtering Passover lambs. The priests and Levites are going to be slaughtering thousands of Passover lambs. While the Passover lamb is on the cross. So uh, obviously this date is significant. This season is significant. And he has made that decision to not go to Jerusalem. And we accept the fact that he's made that according to the Father's will and the leading of the Holy Spirit and so forth. But think about it. What are these 5,000 men also doing? They're skipping Passover themselves. If they were spiritually minded, why aren't they in Jerusalem? Because it's expected for every devout Jew to go to Jerusalem, to go to the temple. For Passover, for Pentecost, and Tabernacles, you have to go three times a year. But here's 5,000 men with their wives, with their children. They're not going to Jerusalem. Something to think about. Thirdly, the return of his apostles presented additional opportunities for their training. The return of his apostles presented additional opportunities for their training. They came back and they reported. We told, were told in Luke that they had to give an account. Remember, they're still under training. And under training, they're given a short ministry. They go out and they accomplish it. They come back and they report. Here's what happened. We did this well. We didn't do that well. We, they brought us these demons. We couldn't cast them out. What's wrong with us? What, what problems were we having there? Or... Uh, we were teaching and they had a question. We didn't know the answer. You know, well, what's the answer? And they get to report back. And they get to learn from what went right, what went wrong. What, what could they handle? What couldn't they handle? And so forth. It's a great pattern for training ministry. Um, something, that we wanna, something that we want to imitate here. We're already imitating here. Men that are under training here are... Uh, potential uh, candidates or potential uh, guest speakers and go to uh, other churches and different places. If uh, you know a pastor needs a substitute, and we send a guy down there to cover a Sunday or, or things like that. So it's a perfect training opportunity. And then they come back and get more training and report back. You know, this went well, this didn't go well. Or, uh, you know, they had this question. I didn't have an answer. I got stumped or didn't know what I was doing. And it's great. Because while you're training, you don't know what you're doing, and that's how you learn. And the Lord has the opportunity to fix things and, and uh, remedy some deficiencies and adjust some thinking and things that happen there. So uh, the return of the apostles, and that's recorded for you in Mark 6, 30-32, Luke 9, 10, and John 6, 6. It becomes a training Opportunity. And I think the verse in John 6, 6 specifically highlights how training oriented it is because he asked Philip a question knowing what he intended to do. And yet he asked Philip a question. Why? Because he wanted not only to, to hear Philip's response, but for that response to be on the record. The other disciples are hearing Philip's response. The angels are hearing Philip's response. See, it's not that he's clueless as to what Philip's response is, just like the Lord wasn't clueless that Abraham really had faith to sacrifice Isaac. But he says, now I know that you love me because you have not spared your only begotten son. Not only does the Lord know it, but the angels know it. Abraham knows it. You think Abraham knew it before that event? Not to the degree that he knew it after the event. 
And Isaac knew it as well. So it's a training opportunity. They had to give an account for their ministry. They had to give an account for their ministry. It's referenced in Luke 9.10, but I would relate it to Romans 14.12, 1 Peter 3.15, and 1 Peter 4.5. We're going to look at those verses here in a moment. They had to give an account for their ministry. See, believers are terrified of pastors with authority. I'm talking, maybe not in this church, but I'm talking in general. In general, pastors with authority are scary to a lot of Christians. Nowadays anymore, you've got home churches that are that where people just love, hey, let's just have a home fellowship and we'll get together and men will stand up and read Bible and we'll talk about, well, I think it means this, I think it means that, it means this to me. And, and we'll have just kind of a little fellowship thing. And what do they have? No pastor. And they thrive on that. Their websites uh, uh, advertise that as a positive feature. You know, there's no, there's no dictator telling us what to do. But we're just all a happy fellowship and Jesus is our pastor. And they spotlight that as somehow that's a positive thing. No, you're sheep without a shepherd is what you are. Because he designed, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the local churches. And who's ministering the word in those local churches? The pastor teacher. See, well, there's a resistance to pastors with authority. There's resistance. And it's a frightening thing. And I think, oh, we can't have a tyrant. We can't have a dictator. We've got to have, we've got to have control. See, and so authority needs to be not with the pastor. Authority needs to be with the members. And the members call the pastor and fire the pastor. And if the pastor's not making them happy, you're out of here. We'll get a guy that that'll tickle our ears. And so constitutions get written to where the members can hire and fire the pastor, and and he serves at them. And he, if he, you know, dares to teach the word of God in his whole council, where that makes a lot of people mad. You know, can can truly a pastor under that kind of congregational dictatorship can he teach the whole council of God's word? Or is he going to shrink from declaring anything that would uh, cause uh, an uncomfortable congregation to get rid of him? Say, anyway, a lot of this is on my mind now because my dad's writing a church constitution. <laughs> and uh, the believers there in Everett, they're looking for a pastor and they're, they're examining their constitution and they're considering th- you know, different things and how do we write this and what makes it biblical, what makes it less biblical, and so forth. But the biggest thing that keeps church members from being afraid of a a, a tyrant or a pastor with authority is the recognition that the pastor does have authority, but he's not a tyrant because he himself has to give an account. He himself has to give an account. They had to give an account to Jesus Christ, and that's no different than pastors today. See, he's teaching them to minister, but they have to give an account to him. And that's not going to change when he's resurrected and and seated at the Father's right hand. And they're functioning in the church age as apostles. They're going to function in the church age as apostles with greater authority than any church age believer has ever had. But they still are accountable to Jesus Christ. They're accountable to him in the heavens. So the idea of giving an account, and I've got scriptures here, and I've got another one that's not here, but I'll find it before we're done. Uh, but anyway, Luke nine ten, they had to give an account. Luke nine and verse ten. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. I think in Mark it said uh, all they had done and all they had taught. Now let's consider what this giving an account is. We all will give an account at the judgment seat of Christ. That's Romans 14, 12. Romans 14, 12. Not just pastors, but everybody will give an account. Verse 10, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. 
So there is an eternal account that must be given. If, uh, if the, the pastor is a tyrant, he's going to answer for that. And he's going to answer for that in eternity. But he will also answer for that in time. Because there's an account to be given in eternity, but there's also an account to be given in time. Let's look at 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 4.5. These passages speak of accounts that we give in time. So often, this verse is placed in an evangelism uh, context. This verse is placed in a, in a context for um, giving somebody the gospel. But I would, as we read through this, let's just keep an open mind and ask ourselves when we're done, is, is, is that the only context that this passage applies is that the only conceivable realm in which we give an account? Especially when the issue here is uh, in verse 8, to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. So the, the context here is angelic conflict and maintaining your Christian way of life even in the face of an adversary. Or in the face of a fellow believer who shouldn't be an adversary, but is. And um, you, you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. And then in the Old Testament citations that, that are consistent with this. That the eyes of the Lord, that we turn away from evil and do good. We seek peace and pursue it. That's a feature of the Christian way of life. It was a feature of the Old Testament Christian way of life. It's a feature of the New Testament Christian way of life. That the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So here's, this is the Christian way of life. And, and nothing yet, up through verse 12, has given us an inkling that we're talking about uh, evangelism. We're talking about living the Christian way of life under, uh, under difficult circumstances where we are uh, mistreated. And it continues after the Old Testament quotations are complete with verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Not necessarily limited to the realm of evangelism. It could include evangelism, but it's not limited to evangelism. Any Christian way of life that's divine good production, you should be zealous for it. And even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Is this, is this evangelism? Is this where you have to submit to lordship in order to be saved? No. This is where you have to be occupied with Christ to uh, run with endurance the race that's set before you, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you. As I say, so often this is thrown into evangelism. That this is an unbeliever asking you about salvation. Well, what if it's not? What if it's a fellow believer asking you uh, about the angelic conflict you're engaged in? Or asking you about the evil you're suffering? Or about uh, a child asking you, uh, asking a parent... How is it that you keep your eyes on the Lord when these when these afflictions are growing? So always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account. See, this is not an eternal account where we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account in eternity. This is a temporal account where we give an account right here, right now, relating the Christian way of life and the angelic conflict. That's what the disciples were doing when they reported back to Jesus Christ. So being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. I think the context for this is far, far beyond witnessing and giving the gospel to unbelievers. Don't get me wrong. We should be always ready to give an account. 
That's having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, Ephesians chapter 6. You and I should be ready to give the gospel the drop of a hat, right? Anytime, anywhere, someone says, what must I do to be saved? Boom, we better be right there. And you can teach this verse that way, but that's not the only way to take this verse. And I think it's a very narrow and, and insufficient way to take this verse. Giving an account. Now, keeping in mind, giving an account, giving an account. When it comes to pastors in a local assembly in verse 15. Sanctifying Christ as Lord in their hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Considering the fact that this could be descriptive of a pastor in the ministry. What is his hope? What is his defense? What is his purpose when he's being slandered? Who does he give an account to? He gives an account to Jesus. That's who he answers to. See, when he takes a flock, you've got a flock of believers. There's only one believer that doesn't have a pastor in that church. I don't care if you've got a church of ten. There's nine members and a pastor. Nine members have a pastor. The one pastor doesn't have a pastor. You've got a hundred members. You've got a thousand members. 999 of them have a pastor. Who's his pastor? He doesn't have a pastor. Who does he give an account to? And trust me, giving an account to Jesus Christ is a lot scarier in the fear of the Lord than having to answer to a uh, pulpit committee or having to answer to uh, a deacon board or having to answer to a, a membership that's got a, uh, a vote going on for the dismissal of a pastor where they put a, they circulate their petition, get the 10% signatures they need, and then bring forth their witnesses and, and all of that. The pastor is ready to give an account. He's going to make a defense. He's going to give an account. But his, his account is going to be given to Jesus Christ with gentleness and reverence, enduring all the slander that, that comes about. Still in the same book, over down to chapter 4 and verse 5, the, uh, the unbelievers will give an account as well. And so when you are abused, when you are mistreated, the Lord will take care of that. And you know what's interesting? The time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Whatever you did as an unbeliever, that's enough. <laughs> All right? You don't need to pursue any more of that now that you're saved. Okay? Or if you are saved and you have a season of carnality, that's long enough. End it now. Confess. Get right with the Lord. Turn it around. So you may have maybe already having been saved and then later on you had a season of carnality. Well, that's long enough. The time past is already sufficient. And in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. See, all of a sudden you're not as fun as you used to be. Oh, come on. You know, you used to, you could, you could out drink us and out fight us and out swear us and out, you know, you could, you could. Chase more girls and three of us put together and, and boy, you used to be a lot of fun. What happened to you? Now you got all religious, right? You're not as fun as you used to be now that you got all religious. And so now they malign you. Oh, he thinks he's better than us. He thinks he's all holy now. We know what he used to do. He's not holy. And then they start slandering and maligning and say, oh, well, we know you're just a blah, 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 blah. Yet they will give an account. To him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And we'll give an account. Who's the living and the dead? Believers and unbelievers. We're the living. They're the dead. All right. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. Oh, it's a fun passage. There's a lot you got to do with that passage. In fact, that passage figures prominently in a lot of the Calvinism debates and things that we talk about when we talk about, um, you know, does regeneration precede faith or does regeneration a, a, uh, a response of faith and, and different things you got to deal with? Why do we preach the gospel to the dead? And there's lots of other things that go into that. 
One verse I did not put in here is in Hebrews. Let me grab that real quick. Hebrews 13, verse 17. How did I leave off Hebrews 13, 17 when this... Uh, see, the Holy Spirit's making up for my human deficiencies here. Okay, you got to add Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders. That is the under... Prohistemi, those who stand in front. Remember, the shepherd leads; he's in front. The sheep follow. Uh, it's not a it's not a rancher and a uh, you know a rustler and a cattle drive, where instead of being called sheep, uh, the the congregation would be called uh, a herd of of cattle, and then the the cattle drive comes from behind. You know, where we whip you into a movement and we push you out in front. Not what it is. No, the shepherd stands in front and leads. And uh, when you're in front, you take the first arrows coming in. And, uh, and, and the shepherd never asks the, the sheep to go anywhere that he himself hasn't already walked. So obey your standing in fronters, those who stand in front. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls. There's a benefit there. As those who will give an account. As those who will give an account. Who do they answer to? And what are they answerable for? And you ought to consider how seriously, if, they're, if they are shepherds and not merely hirelings. Now, if they're hirelings, then maybe they don't care about your soul. They don't care about the spiritual things. They're just in it for the money and whatnot. And that's a whole other issue. But if they are standing in fronters and they are soul shepherds keeping watch over your souls and uh, they are mindful of their accountability to, towards the Lord, then you don't have to worry about them as being tyrants. You know, any more than a wife needs to worry about her husband being a dictator. See, because he shepherds the wife's soul, doesn't he? And who does he answer to for that? As those who will give an account. As those who will give an account. They're accountable to Jesus Christ. And read Ezekiel 34, how the Lord handles faithless shepherds. I'm out of time this morning, but you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about faith, faithless shepherds. The Lord deals with that. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. And I like that. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. You know, kind of like we say, we can do this the easy way or the hard way, right? <laughs> Let them do this with joy and not with grief. You know, if the pastor, if he's, if he's dedicated, if he's obedient to Jesus Christ, he's going to shepherd anyway, even if he hates it, even if it brings him grief, even if it breaks his heart. He's a faithful shepherd. He'll still shepherd. He'll still watch over the soul. He'll still do everything he's going to do. He's going to hate He's going to hate it. It'll be grief. There'll be grief with it. But he'll still stay faithful. And he'll still be rewarded. That's back to that first Peter 3 we were just looking at. He'll, he'll still be rewarded. You, on the other hand, won't be. Because in that situation, it's unprofitable for you. If, if you make it a joy for the pastor to pastor you, that bears fruit. That's profitable. There's reward for that. Reward for being a, a joy-producing sheep. But there is loss of reward, unprofitable. Reward that's taken away and given to the one who has ten. There is loss of reward for being the grief-producing, uh, making it rough on your pastor kind of sheep kind of approach. All right, if that makes any sense. They give an account. And these disciples are coming back. They've had their training ministry. They're coming back now to report the works they've done, the, the word they've taught, the, the kingdom they've proclaimed. They've got to give an account to Jesus Christ. And that's uh, it's a big part of what's happening here. And uh, when they went out, they didn't take any bread with them because they were expected to be supported. Now they've come back. They still don't have any bread with them. And now there's 5,000 more besides them. They still don't have any bread. So we'll uh, come back in two weeks and, uh, and feed these guys.
All right. Any questions? Any final thoughts? Anything before we close in prayer? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness and for the blessings of ministry. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. And Father, I pray as we pursue a training ministry here, Father, we're training pastor teachers, we're training evangelists, we're training all 11 spiritual gifts. I pray, Father, that we would be training shepherds and not hirelings. I pray that we would be training all believers to realize that every believer will give an account. And, Father, that the ongoing accounts we give in time are a part of that stewardship with every gift, with every ministry, and with every effect. We answer to Jesus Christ as the head of the church. We thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.